1: Hi, this is Tom Bronson, and welcome to Maximize Business Value, a podcast for business owners who are passionate about building long-term sustainable value in their business. This episode is part of our series called Tales from the 17% Club. As I've said over and over again, a full 83% of attempted business transactions fail to reach the finish line, meaning that only 17% are successful. In this series, we interview people who have successfully sold their businesses, we call them the 17% Club, to learn more about the process and to hear some interesting stories along the way. You won't be disappointed today. So in this episode, I'd like to welcome our guest, Stephen Van Oyen, former CEO of Trackwood Matters, which rebranded as Rhino Fleet Tracking, a business he and his investors exited in January of 2020. So here's how our paths cross. Turn out, turns out that uh, the original investors in Stephen's company were the very same people who had invested in one of my businesses back in 2001. In fact, the first time I met Steve uh, was when uh, one of the lead investors in that business asked if I would talk to him as a potential CEO candidate and investor uh, in one of his other businesses. And I remember it because I was on vacation at the time and I stood in a parking lot talking to Steve while my family was shopping. So our paths crossed again at BizOwnersEd, the nonprofit organization that you've heard me talk about on this show. Uh, After he sold his business, And I immediately begged him to come on the podcast and share his story with you. So here he is. Welcome to Maximize Business Value, Steve. Well, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. I'm so thrilled that we're able to do this. Now, tell us about Track What Matters, or uh, I guess you were more commonly referred to as Rhino uh, toward the end. But tell us about that business uh, that you sold in 2020.
2: Sure. So I mean, if you give the elevator pitch kind of piece of it what what we really did was uh, fleet tracking and a lot of times when people think of fleet tracking, it's more the over the road long haul trucking kind of thing and that really wasn't us. it was more uh small fleets, local fleets uh more than anything else. so think plumbers, electricians, uh you know pool service things like that so. It was really, you know, if you think about a primary service we provided, it was for business owners uh, to know where their guys were, how long they spent there, were they actually doing what they said they were supposed to do, which obviously created labor efficiencies, fuel efficiencies, all that kind of good stuff. Um, so a SaaS business um, that we built up, um, you know, it's kind of a to me, in a in a lot of ways, for me, having come out of what I call seven and a half years of hard time at Verizon uh, in the in the big big corporate life, I exited that. I was managing, uh, uh, I guess, forty five developers in nine cities and three different countries, and wasn't having a lot of fun doing that. And so. Um, you know, if you think of the genesis of what Track What Matters became, that was really a, hey, we're doing something from our angel, this group of angel investors, and uh, you want to come try and build this thing. Uh, And so that was kind of my early start. And then, you know, we had to get good at, hey, you actually need to now sell this product because the guy that was going to sell the product, he's not actually staying around. So go figure that out. So I kind of had a Unofficial MBA in the real world, um, that I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, but that's kind of the genesis. And then uh we built that up. Um, you know, and I don't want to get too much. I know you got questions on the actual sale process and that sort of thing, but you know, we built that literally from zero, no customers whatsoever. Um, and then uh got to break even after about two and a half years, and then uh, kind of I'm going to say Peter Long continued to grow but at a at a relatively slow clip wasn't enough profit in there for anybody to get rich and then we've kind of figured it out at the end of 15 and had a nice hockey stick at that point so um, that's kind of the real short of it what do I, what did I leave out that you want to know about oh
1: no that's a, that is a lot i mean that is that is uh, greatness, you know, you've you've told us a little bit about what the company is and what it does, and of course, I know all these uh, investors that you're talking about, and and uh, mm-hmm. um, really good folks, uh, and actually had David Hammer, which is one of your investors, on our podcast a couple of uh, episodes ago, a couple episodes before this. Uh, we went so long talking about uh, business transactions. That uh, that we had to break it into two podcasts. So, uh, well, let's let's talk now that we know a little bit about the company. Let's talk about the exit strategy. Now, of course, I know you're investors, so I'm guessing that they were pressing you from perhaps day two uh, for an exit. Uh, I know what that feels like, right? Uh, but did you guys have an intentional exit strategy, or did ultimately your transaction fall in your lap?
2: Uh, yeah. So, you know, day two, did we have an exit strategy? Not more than, hey, we are going to exit, right? And that's one of the things that I always told people on the other side. And especially when I was integrating with uh, the other company that the PE group bought at the same time as ours is, look, this isn't my baby. Uh, It was something built from day one with the intention of selling. Now, we wanted to do good in the world and that sort of thing, but it, it absolutely had the intention of selling. So when you got to exit strategy, if you want to kind of know the story behind there, um, about when we got to uh, middle part of 2018, um, I really started to have the itch, if you will, or the, the thought process that, gosh, I want to sell in 19. Because I don't want to sell in 20, which was an election year. That was my motivation behind it. Uh, And so uh, introduce the idea. We actually took the board to a uh, and did a board meeting in Napa. Uh, We never paid our board. And so it was kind of a a thank you trip with our spouses and and really introduced that idea then. Uh, and then we got some confirmation of valuations and things like that as we entered early nineteen. Uh, had some people that were really in the industry, uh, some bankers and and things like that 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 really confirmed that that would be a good idea. Uh, and so I think it was kind of March of nineteen when we said yes, we're going to sell and we are going to hire an investment banking firm for that process. So. Um, so, from that standpoint, we absolutely went on the market very, very intentionally.
1: So you you had a timeline in mind, I guess. That was what did you say? The middle of uh, 2018 when you had your board meeting in Napa. Uh,
2: is that or if I yeah? Can... So it was I'd say September. It was September uh-huh. of eighteen that we had that conversation, and really that conversation was just, "Hey, I am my partner that was with me." Uh, in the day-to-day operations, we had both agreed, obviously, before that meeting, that hey, we were going to say this, uh, that hey, we think nineteen uh, is a good time to sell, uh, and and there's some other stuff that went into it. Uh, you know, if you get into the why, right. uh, which I think so.
1: well, a nice that's a, I want to know what 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 made you decide that it was time to think about selling the business. What, you know, what gave you that itch? What gave you uh, that uh, desire?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously the, uh, the, the pay, the payment uh, the bank account moving uh, that's always one. Right. Um, But the other piece was really, I was constantly, uh, and I'm sure a lot of, a lot of listeners are getting these, once a week, once every couple of weeks, somebody calling, often they're the, hey, would you like us to bring you some professional management? Uh, You'll sell your business and and we'll bring you professional management, which my partner was always insulted by. Um, But yeah, we were getting those, but we were also getting really legit PE firms uh, that were calling and asking questions on a regular basis and some of the markers that had been there in terms of 10 million revenue 2 million EBITDA that sort of thing those just kept coming down right and so now when you had a little less revenue <clears throat> and we were getting real close to those numbers anyway but as those markers had just come down from the PE guys there's so much money sitting on the sidelines so much opportunity and the PE groups were realizing that, man, if I can get them even lower than that, and I can, I can actually put a little into them, then the return on that is is very outsized. Um, and so that was coming from that standpoint. But then also, and and again, you know, our investors and my board, uh, for the most part, they SaaS business really wasn't their historic business, um, and they'll tell you that. And so we were getting into this little bit of a battle, um, and it was a business battle, not a personal battle, over should we be going after net net revenue or EBITDA, or should we be going after growth more, right? And so we were on the front of my partner and I inside the business saying, man, we got to do everything we possibly can to fuel the growth within reason, within good economics, but we need to push that hard. Uh, and our our board uh, was was much more than, man, you just need to show them how much you can put on the bottom line. And so that just became a challenge uh, over time. And it was just a little bit of, you know, and sometimes it's almost like, I I liken it to a little bit like uh, a head football coach or something like that. Eventually, the message is just it's not getting through the team. And it's like, all right, well, it's probably time to change your head coach. Uh, Doesn't mean the head coach is bad. Doesn't mean the players are bad. It's just it's it's about time. Um, And so I think all that mixed together, um, you know, really kind of came to that because what my partner and I really wanted was, man, we want to see how far we could take this. Um, And we were in that, let's grow. And the investors had been in for eight, nine years, 10 years, something like that at that point. And so it was really kind of, it was maturity and time. And so it all kind of played together.
1: Oh, it's, it's funny. I think until um, um, you brought that up, I hadn't really thought about that the whole growth versus earnings. Of course, earnings is wildly important. Now, most businesses transact on a basis of earnings. I know that you guys didn't, and we're going to hear more about that uh, shortly. But um, the uh, one of the rules that I've always used, especially in a technology company, and you guys really technically were a technology company right and so um you know i use the rule of 40 which says that um that growth uh and earnings added together percentage of growth percentage of earnings added together should equal 40 That's and true. if you can grow at 40% or more it's okay to not make anything to the bottom line because it's clear that you're mm-hmm. Uh, that you're offering the sacrifice of your earnings to get the growth. And the other side is also true. Once you stop growing, you know, or if you're growing at 10%, well, you better be taking 30% to the bottom line. Right. And so, uh, so I think that you guys, I would tend to agree with where your, your assessment was in that, that, uh, that you all probably weren't quite to what uh, a term that I actually got from one of your investors. And that's the harvest, uh, mode. It's when you kind of reach a plateau and then you can harvest the profits. Uh, but it sounded like you had a good opportunity for growth, and you're right. Uh, yeah, when man. when you don't see eye to eye, I've actually sold a business at one point because I didn't see eye to eye with the uh, uh, with the investment group that uh, that had it, and so um, it was time to move on. Even though there's more to be done, time to move on. And so I I thoroughly respect that. Um, no, it sounds like you stuck with your timeline. You said you wanted to close in 19, but I know you closed in January of 2020. So you're feeling uh, pretty good that you guys really stuck to the to the uh, predicted or desired timeline. Is that correct?
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was literally January 2nd of 20. So uh, it was as close to 19 as we could get.
1: Very very commonly referred to in the MA industry as December 32nd. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. So but actually there's there's some good news about closing in January because then the taxes are not going to be due for another, you know, 15 months.
2: Well, <laughs> yeah. And if you if you hit a COVID year, it actually takes you to 18 months. So with See? the extension. So it's just awesome.
1: It was market timing. You guys knew that COVID was coming. So uh, yeah, so uh so tell me about your transition team you hired an investment banker did you guys go out and interview a bunch of investment bankers because as you say um i very commonly hear and i was the same way at granbury uh i'm getting a call every day from an investment banker either investment bankers or private equity firms uh that uh, that were you know just ringing me off the hook um and by the way if you're getting those calls don't think you're anything special. you're a number to them uh, and and um, just because they're calling doesn't mean they're a serious buyer because in the end, it's gonna be one buyer, right? And so so I just want to uh, clarify that for our audience. Um, but uh, did you guys intentionally go out and interview a bunch of uh, investment bankers, or how did you go about this?
2: Yeah, we did. Let me make one comment on on your on your last deal about the the people that are calling into you. What I would say is if you're on the other side, use it for some learning, right? Go ahead and take some of those calls, learn what they're looking for, you know, share what you're comfortable with. Don't give away the farm. Um, But that was for me, that was a huge part of my own education was just going ahead and having a conversation. Hey, tell me what you're looking for. Tell me where the because that was part of where I got to understand where the numbers really were starting to come in at. Um, so, uh, I, and I thoroughly agree with that. I, as I tell
1: everybody, I was getting those calls, you know, three or four times a week and I talked to all of them. Uh, you know, my rule was I'll talk to, any, I'll give anybody 30 minutes Sure. Uh, and, uh, and you're right. It's like getting an MBA when you have that. So I'm glad you, uh, that you mentioned
2: that point. So, uh, so, yes. so on the, on the investment banker side, um, yeah, I went out. Uh, I was tasked with it in the beginning, and then the the, the board kind of took it over um, after a little bit. But I did initial research. I I grabbed one of the ones that had called me, um, and then another that I'd been introduced to from uh, one of the local guys with Silicon Valley Bank um, that I'd talked to a couple of times. And then propped up another one that I literally found through a blog posting. And I had I'd gone out and searched, you know, uh, SaaS investment bankers and something else, right? I'd searched some different ones looking for really kind of boutique firms, right? And so ended up in that process, uh, meeting the group that's out of Birmingham, Alabama of all places. Um, that uh, that ended up being who we went with finally. Uh, and there's a story around how we got there. But um, so actually, David Hammer that you mentioned, he kind of took a lead off of, you know, from me in, in whittling down some more. I think he looked around a little further, but ended up, we ended up landing on those three uh, that I'd kind of brought to the table. And then what we did is we brought them all in. Uh, you know, had a couple of calls here and there, did some, you know, obviously they got to do some calls with us, the management team, um, and they were allowed to prep some stuff. And then we had, I think, two or three days, we literally rented a room at DFW Airport. They were able to fly in, we had lunch, and then they came in and they all had a prep book for us, uh, told us about the market, told us about the industry. Um, you know, basically told us all they knew. Right. And then at the end, they always waited till the end. They gave us their range of valuation that they thought we were worth. Um, And so two out of three were pretty close to the same. One was considerably less. Um, We didn't, you know, and they were really our third choice prior to, you know, kind of getting to that valuation. Um, But they were, it was just very different. Right. It was kind of the I mean, quite frankly, they were the New York, New York company. Uh, And then we had Alabama and then we had Colorado, right? And it just, the New York guys felt like New York guys. And then the Southern guys felt like Southern guys. Um, By the way, the New York guys would not play well with uh, some of your investors, I know. (laughs) (laughs) It would have been funny. Yes, it would have been
1: been wildly entertaining if if nothing else.
2: Yeah. Um, So anyway, the... And, and really, if there's a one or two learnings in there, we actually picked uh, one group first uh, and really almost the entire board did, uh, except our chairman. He he picked the other one. Um, and it was really like a, I had a I actually had a scoring system on my own. And I had a bunch of questions and I was scoring everybody on the question. I just wanted some kind of systematic way other than gut feel. And so in that, if if number two was an 85, number one was a 91 kind of it was it was right there tight um, for me. And then the rest of the group, I think, was really kind of the same thing. So we end up at the end of the board meeting picking, you know, after the last group presented, picking who we picked and then. I took my family on vacation, right? We'd worked up to this. Hey, I got a week off. We're not going to do anything in that week. And so then I start to get the calls that, hey, we got their engagement letter and it was 30 something pages and they were documenting every way they'd gotten screwed over the last 30 years and they were preventing that. That's the way I read it, right? Is that they were just, they put in clauses like, Man, if you guys quit us and you sell within a year, even if we didn't bring you, them to you, we still get our commission. I think just really onerous. And so uh, obviously we went, hey, we can't do that. Uh, went to the other guys, the number two group, which is the the group out of Alabama. Couldn't be happier. Um, theirs was like five or six pages. It felt like a partnership. Um, and it was really, really great from that point forward. Now the the breakup with those other guys, that wasn't real clean. But uh, you know, we didn't hadn't signed anything. We just verbally said, hey, we plan to go with you, send us our letter or send us your letter. And that's kind of how that played out. But um
1: I, I imagine that there there was some fairly strong language going back and forth. But as you said, since you guys hadn't signed an engagement with them, I assume that they didn't threaten legal action or anything against you.
2: Certainly not. Certainly not. It was just a verbal, at this point, we pick you, send us your engagement letter. So the big learning from that is when you're talking to your IBs before you even get into that next step, hey, send me your engagement letter, a sample. I want to read through that before we even get going much further than this. So that's that's certainly my new wisdom (laughs) on the other side of that is let's do that first. Uh, because, you know, Hey, before we start dating too long, let me see the prenup. Right. So
1: that's a, that's a brilliant strategy. I'd never really thought about that and not, not one that I had used before, but I will add that to my bag. I think that's some great, great advice. Um, now, Clearly, the one that that you chose. And by the way, you know, you said Birmingham of all places. I love Birmingham. I think it's a wonderful town. And <laughs> any of our listeners that are in Birmingham, uh, then we love you. So, uh, but it is an interesting place for a business like that to be uh, based. And so, uh, um, in fact, one of the one of the great uh, banks in. I think it was a uh, bank South or something like that. South, ba- I can't remember the name of it, but, uh, but a great bank that was courting us in the early days of a, uh, of another transaction that I did when we were rolling up a, a um, distribution business. But uh, so I spent some uh, fun time in, in Birmingham. It was a, it was a great place now. So the group that you chose did, you know, what role do you feel like they played in shepherding you through the process?
2: sure uh you know and it, often ibs are kind of equated to a realtor um except they do a whole lot more work than any realtor i've i've ever met no offense to my realtor friends right um but i mean literally it was everything from you know interviewing us to begin with which of course they'd done that before this meeting and so they knew a whole lot about us then we Uh, Had a few more calls. We flew into their office, spent a half day or so with them to prepare it, to get to the point of preparing a teaser document. And then they queued up, I was just looking at the numbers this morning, they queued up 184 potential buyers, a mix of strategics and private equity uh, for us. They contacted every single one of them after they sent out this one page teaser. Um, And of course that was code name. Nobody knew who we were yet, all that kind of fun stuff. And then, uh, then they helped us put together the SIP or SIM confidential information memorandum or presentation, whichever you want to call it, which then I think that's like 40 pages or something like that. 33, I guess, looking over here. Um, So they helped us put the, and really they put it together we gave them data, we gave them information, but they really made it pretty. And, and that allowed us to keep some of our job, <laughs> actually work on some of what we needed to work on um, in the meantime, but they have, you know, one of the great things, actually, this group pulls a lot of Ole Miss, Alabama, Auburn kids, and and really they do a f- fantastic job, right? You got some really smart Vanderbilt kids that are, coming in into their group. So they did all that. And then uh, they actually, I mean, week to week, I was getting updates. We we as a group were getting updates on who was still interested, who wasn't, why weren't they interested? What did people like? What was that feedback in their conversations they were having? So we were really seeing along the way you know what that level of interest was. Um, you know, in essence, if you want to equate it to the real estate deals, how many showings did we have? What was their feedback? All that kind of stuff. And so uh, then we got to IOIs or indication of interest. Uh, had had many of those. I don't remember the well, exact.
1: So number. I was going to. That's what I was going to ask you. The one eighty four. How many of them gave you an expression of interest or
2: or a, a uh, indication of interest? Yeah. So I think it was in the 20 range um, on that. And then, and of course they were all over the place. Uh, And then as we got down, we whittled it to six that we invited in for management meetings. Um, And so that part of the process uh, was usually they came in for dinner the night before. We recapped a little bit driving, uh, so and in, in fact, the IB flew in for all these meetings. We held them rather than going to these guys. We had a central location where we did the actual meetings. Um, the couple of principals from the investment banking firm came in and they met met with us usually before dinner. Then we went to dinner. we kind of recapped what what we all thought about the group there. I went home, came back and had a four to six hour management meeting where we went through another deck that included a lot of what the sim did, but it also had some, you know, we dove deeper into some other things in that. And then he restarted all again. I literally would go finish one of those meetings, go home, take a nap, get a shower, get ready and then go redo that uh, for six meetings. And, and I think we spread six meetings over two weeks. And for me, it was a blast. Um, but it was tiring because you were on, you were on at dinner. You were on in that six hour meeting. Heck you even the bathroom break you're on because you're actually having a conversation and then you're finally running to use the restroom and come back. (laughs) So, um, but to me, that part was a blast and they really walked us through that whole thing.
1: That's awesome. And a good one will do that. And so so uh, then you had those management presentations. By the way, did your board participate in the management presentations or was that just you and your partner?
2: No, certainly not. That was me and my partner. You know, I would equate that to taking your parents on a date with you. right? <laughs> sure don't want to do that. Um, yeah, no, you're right. They weren't, I mean, they were fully exiting. Um, yep. You know, might be a different story if, if your board had operators in there, you know, people that had been along, uh, along the ride, but I think it would have, and and the IB agreed that it would have greatly decreased our value if they came along and were part of it. And they, and the board honored that it was a little tough for some of them, but they honored it. No, I think that
1: that's uh, I think that's a great strategy. So you had the six management meetings, then out of that, how
2: many letters of intent did you get? Uh, we ended up. I think we had five LOIs. Okay, so uh, one of the
1: six dropped out after
2: the management. One of the six dropped out altogether. Okay. Um, the we we really had two clear front runners uh-huh. um, at, at that point, and and so they were they were neck and neck in total valuation. Um, but terms, you know, one was clearly better than the other. Unfortunately, that was the one that we preferred, uh, anyway, but, um, you know, how you got to the execution and the final valuation, uh, with the second one just wasn't near as clean as the first one for our investors or for my partner, me. And and we had another equity guy that continued on.
1: No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so you, you narrow the search down and then you, you picked the one that you're going with and that's when due diligence starts. Right. And so, so how did I, I we've written a blog and I did a, a, a podcast on what I call the dreaded due diligence process. Uh, how did your due diligence go and did it add value or take away value from the sale? If you had the retrade conversation.
2: Yeah. So to answer the last question, uh, there was no value change whatsoever. No uh, kidding. That's awesome. Yeah. they and, and for a couple of reasons. One, um, one of the things that we didn't come, it was just a flat, here's what we're interested in paying versus a, we will pay X percent of multiple. Now that's how they got there to begin with, but it was just a, hey, we plan to pay X. Um so we didn't have this deal where we could artificially inflate something in between or anything like that. That's where we're going. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was it was pretty much that. And then one of the things that that I told the IB up front, our board certainly told the IB up front, and I even had a chance to tell the P.E. guys in a conversation kind of offline, look, this group will not retrade. Um, yeah, they're okay walking away, um, and and really the nice thing is I was able to put that on the board rather than being me who would go forward, um, and and of course the investment banker was obviously able to do that and separate me and and my partner from that part of the conversation, and it's part of the reason that we had the board handle a lot of this stuff, and I think very wisely, they insisted on it. But it allowed us to have this cool separation, you know, whereas, you know, we were at least able to say, look, we don't have the votes to pick you or not pick you. We don't have the votes to finish this deal on our own with or without. So you got to you got to take care of our investors. Um, and and I like that part. I wanted to be honoring to our investors regardless, um, but it allowed us to play a really cool kind of kind of middle ground, if you will, to where we were on the same page probably as our investors, but we knew we were going forward and and so we were kind of on both sides of the fence and and it was kind of better not to not to have to toe the hard line ourselves.
1: Yep. Uh, that's that's brilliant now. without giving away any numbers, um, ultimately your
2: transaction was not based on earnings, correct? Uh, Correct. So we were a a multiple, really multiple recurring revenue, mainly because we were high 90% recurring revenue. Uh, We had a hardware component. So uh, in the fleet tracking space, you need a piece of hardware that goes in the vehicle. uh, And then um, you have the recurring monthly revenue for the service piece. Right. And so really, really, even though we were growing at, you know, we were adding more than 2% a month, two and a half, three percent 3% a month in the last year. So I think total growth of annualized recurring revenue in our last year was 38%. Uh, the year before was 48. The year before that was 69 and 70. Um, and so we had this really great, so you talk about rule of 40. Our exit rule of 40 was 56 Which was awesome. Uh, And obviously, if you look back at prior years, it was 70 plus uh, in some of those years. So, um, really good stuff from that standpoint. But in that SaaS world now, don't expect to be sold off a multiple of EBITDA. Um, And in fact, you know, again, without giving the numbers, and we love David Hammer, who's the, you know, really awesome conservative sales guy. Uh, has historically reported off, uh, you know, sold off EBITDA and a multiple of EBITDA, which may range from six to eight percent or, or eight times in there. And so uh, I've actually got these cool little rock glasses that I have made for our for our, uh, board. And on the back, it's a little 35X, which is just a little nod to David.
1: Because <laughs> that
2: was that was a multiple of EBITDA uh, yeah. in essence
1: for what we were doing there. That's brilliant that's awesome that's, that's uh, yeah, and that's and that's very rare you know i just i want to point out for our listeners that uh that you know ninety eight percent plus transaction of of all transactions are based on earnings. And David's not wrong uh, when he said that, but occasionally you you uh, find this you know, great opportunity like what you guys had, and you sold on a multiple of recurring revenue. And I think that that's awesome. Uh, in fact, I wish I would met your investment bankers uh, before we sold. I, I can only imagine uh, at my last company, which we sold uh, just two years prior to yours in 2018, It was also a SaaS company. Uh, I wish I'd uh, discovered your investment bankers um, uh, before we did that. Uh, One last thing before we take a short break, and that is, uh, how many employees did you have when you actually
2: sold the business? Uh, 31, if I remember my number correct.
1: And and how did the team react and and
2: how did the transition affect them? So, you know, from... Really, probably the two to three years before, which obviously with high growth, we had high employee growth rate Uh, in that period of time. I started telling internally, uh, if I hadn't told them already, but certainly new hires. Hey, we are a company that's high growth with the intent to sell it sometime. If that scares you, you're probably not in the right place, Um, which which I loved because, and I still interviewed everyone. That was kind of my deal. I wanted to be the last in the list and, you know, Hey, don't bring them in my door unless you really, really like them and, and that sort of thing. But uh, I'd always ask two questions in there. Um, You know, one is, were we consistent? Did our entire employee, all these five or six people you've already talked to, were we consistent? in our message and what we talked about. And then the other piece would be, Hey, we plan to sell. Are you cool with that? Um, you know, because the other side is probably great opportunity, but it also has some risk. And so if you fear that, um, you know, I, I don't want you to come on board and then you get to the other side, uh, and that scares you. So, Once we voted as a board that yes, we're going to pursue this process, we're going to hire an investment banker, we're going to go through that process. And our, you know, I think we were weekly at the time, our weekly Monday or Tuesday morning meeting, I stood up and said, Hey, you know, I've told you guys for years, Mike and I both have told you that we, we certainly plan to sell at some point. Don't be afraid, but we're going to start that process. And so if you see, that we look busier on stuff that's not your stuff or we're on a phone call longer than you expect and things like that, don't let it shock you. We will keep you updated all the way along the way. So when we hired an investment maker, we told them. When we sent out the teasers, we told them. You know, so, and I would encourage that for most. Um, I know there are cases where somebody says, now my people would freak out. Well, if you plan on selling in the next few years, start grooming. Start grooming the organization now because it'll be so much cleaner. Uh, I've got a friend right now who is, I think they're closing. I think they'll close next month. It's Their due diligence is extended, I think, six weeks or something like that. Um, but they're not telling their their employees. Um, and so what they're having to do is they're literally their leadership group where they're kind of trying to make up for that is they're scheduling the day of close. They're going to take them away for an extended weekend uh, and you know, kind of, hey, let's go on a little retreat. We're going to tell you about it over dinner. And then we've got this whole day where you can ask us anything you want. So they're trying to bridge that. I ideally would do it much, much earlier, but they're trying to figure out a way to bridge that because they know the risk on the other side. I, I think that
1: uh, that it's smart advice to talk about it. You know, Every business on the planet will eventually transition. And, and business owners that say, I don't want my people to, to think I'm going to sell. They all think you're going to sell. There is no <laughs> secrets, right? They all know that either you're going to sell or you're going to die. Uh, there's one of the two things, right? And so uh, so yeah. I, I've always been very open with my employees. And I think that that makes it uh, so much easier because the day that you close, it's not a shock to anybody, right? And so uh, you're right. And uh, so I think that is also great advice. Man, look at this. You're giving us one nugget right after the next. We're talking with Stephen Van Oyen, a member of the 17% Club. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in 30 seconds.
0: Every business will eventually transition, some internally to employees and managers, and some externally to third-party buyers. Mastery Partners equips business owners to maximize business value so they can transition their businesses on their terms using our four-step process. We start with a snapshot of where your business is today. Then we help you understand where you want to be and design a custom strategy to get you there. Next, we help you execute that strategy with the assistance of our amazing resource network. And ultimately, you'll be able to transition your business on your terms. What are you waiting for? More time? More revenue? If you want to maximize your business value, it takes time. Now is that time. Get started today by checking us out at www.masterypartners.com or email us at infomasterypartners.com at to learn more.
1: We're back with Steven Van Oyen, a business owner who successfully sold his business in 2020. So, Steven, you told us a lot about the story and took us all the way up to the close. What did you learn going through the process?
2: Oh, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I, I would say that's that's kind of endless, right? So, um you know, it was the for me, it was the first time to to go through the process altogether. So, you know, you think about learning about the investment banking process, learning about how PEs work, learning about, you know, just everything involved in due diligence and and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, one of the things I would thoroughly recommend, there's a little book called the Private Equity Playbook. Uh, written by a guy, guy named Adam Coffey. Uh, it's like 110 pages or something. Super easy read, um, and that was just one of those one of those things that I picked up in the process. Uh, it just, man, I want to know what I'm about to get into. Uh, the more I actually know who the players are, where they fit, uh, you know, because one of the things that you find out with PE and and, and investment bankers is the director is actually a higher level than the vice president. And it's like this flip title thing that's outside of normal business stuff. Uh, so you get this managing director and that's all different. So you know part of that you need to know that private equity playbook helps with is just understanding really who's the boss. Uh, you know because you may have a like in the case of you get these unsolicited calls from P groups and things like that, well, they have this really great sounding title. Well, they, they're not the boss, right? Oh, I need to go talk to to, to my uh, director or whatever, like that. And you're like, wait a minute, in that didn't that fit differently? Well, no, that's actually the person above. Um, and so that's certainly one of the things that I learned really from taking those calls. But in addition, you know, when they said, Hey, let me bring in this person, your story is interesting. Now we moved from an uninterested to an actual, hey, I'm going to put you on the list. And they were on the list when the IB asked about our, you know, who we thought we might sell to. I was able to go back. I I actually had kept a list of everybody who'd called me, what those conversations were, who those contacts were. And I sent them to the investment banker to make sure that they were on the list. And I kind of scored them and stuff like that. So
1: I wish that, uh, that, that, uh, that you hadn't have said that because I thought that I was the only person on the planet that did that. And I was giving myself credit for being the smartest guy ever. And here you are doing the same thing that I was doing. And I, May I, you just, I be <laughs> you just
2: be tied. So uh, um,
1: uh, I think that's a smart play is to, to make sure that you remember those conversations. Yeah.
2: Um, you know, it, so, so obviously learn that piece. Um, and like I said, they're relatively endless. The cool thing was when we sold and we sold to a private equity firm called Excel KKR, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, great, great reputation. Time They they have a history that goes back to KKR, uh, which I think held the uh, the record of the largest deal for like 18 years or something uh, with RJR and Nabisco and, and all that. And so um, the cool thing with that, I sat on the other side uh, for the 19 months that I stayed in my role, right? So as a, a CEO of one of their companies, they actually have dedicated to the fund, a guy whose full-time job is to go out and find companies like ours that aren't for sale yet, and then go call them up and try and create relationships and see if we can buy them before they hit the market, Um and so, and then when different things went on the market, I guess sit on the other side of due diligence and and really on the evaluation if we even wanted to bid. So getting to see both sides of that um, was was fantastic. The other thing that that I would say I learned greatly from the PE side was was the use of debt for growth, uh, debt instruments and and all that. You know the returns that private equity gets—they're uh, just really, really good with that money juggling piece. So sometimes it's really growth and operational improvements. Usually, it's it's that tied with the use of debt to create a bigger organization, greater revenue, uh, greater profits on the other side. Now that doesn't mean. Uh, and it's really not—it's not AKKR's playbook to go and just strip everything down uh, like a lot of PE groups, and then you know take it to nothing and create the biggest amount of profit on the other side. That's that's a private equity playbook. AKKR's desire is to go. How can we turn on the growth? Uh, how can we take and yes, create some efficiencies as we buy up different things, but really add-ons. That allow a bigger suite of products, or we take advantage of, um, you know, this company over here is really good at customer acquisition cost, and and their CAC payback time is really low. So how can we take that with maybe a superior product? Let me put those two together, and we can fuel growth um, with some level of profit. You know, their their model isn't the you know grow at all costs. But that's kind of their approach, and so you you combine that with understanding how to leverage debt, and all of a sudden these limited partners, their return is very outsized compared to the market. Um, and so, I get to learn a ton of that stuff that was just way out of you know even our investment group, uh, who is incredibly seasoned of really sometimes fifty years, maybe even sixty years on a couple of them. Um, it's not, It that's not the way they played, right? So just one more piece of learning there. Awesome. Is there anything that you would
1: have, knowing what you know now, is there anything that you would have done differently in the process?
2: Uh, so I guess the one thing I'd say, I, I brought up when we were selecting our investment bankers, um, get their engagement letter first, right? So I'll, I'll just say that again. Um knowing that knowing, cause really you are for the period through the transaction, you are married to those people. Um, and you know, if you do need to separate because you didn't play it right, you know, you didn't guess right or surmise, right. That, that they're the right ones. You need to know what that walk away looks like. Um, and really I'd say, you know, in the ideal scenario, um, we would have, so we had this real interesting thing that happened with us in that uh, I literally got a call of you know, several weeks before we transacted. And it was a, hey, you know how we said we were going after your industry? Well, we've purchased one of your competitors. Uh, they don't talk about you, you don't talk about them. We think it's gonna be a good fit. We want you to run them both on the other side. Okay, awesome. What that meant at that time was that those of us who were rolling forward a substantial part of our uh, proceeds, we were really buying into that company. Um, and so we got a little data. I probably would ask for more. Um, it was a little, it, there there were some surprises there. Um, and so I guess, you know, But one of our thought processes there was we really wanted to get over the finish line for our investors. Um, We'd gone far enough down this line that we were willing to take that risk uh, that may not be perfect. Um, And we probably made a little more assumption that the due diligence and a squared away, if they're buying us... uh, and they put all this into us and we've gone through the process well surely they did that over here um no and truth i think what what it probably was was hey you guys are really awesome and we know that maybe you can fix some of the issues and concerns we have over here um so in the end that was and and that's a whole different story of you know how do you bring companies together and stuff like that but um That would probably be it. Just ask a few more questions, even if you're probably, as long as you're not a jerk about it, you can probably ask a lot more questions than you think you can ask without spoiling the deal. Is there any other
1: advice that you would give to a business owner who's thinking about a transition?
2: Uh, So another book uh, that i probably read uh, two or three times in the year or so even before the process was finished big by Bo Burlingham, um, you know, former Inc guy. Uh, he's spoken at a couple of Biz Owners Ed things over the years. Um, what I like about that book is it really kind of tees up your mental thought process of what the other side looks like. Um, you know, and one of the things I'd, I'd say more than anything is you need to emotionally disconnect yourself from the fate of that business on the other side. Now, if you're still running it, stay connected as long as you're still running it. But if you are going to exit, you need to understand that you have have sold and given it away. Don't, you know, maybe you drive by your old house that you sold and you're sad because they cut down that tree or something. You need to get over it. Um, And it's probably a mourning period, right? When I finally did exit, when it was clear that Hey, this isn't the place for me long term for different reasons, and and I need to go a different path. Um, there was no question; a little bit of a mourning period, right? Because I wanted to take it to the next bite of the apple personally, um, and it just wasn't in the cards. But you know, there was definitely a period of anger and and whatever else that comes along with that. If ah, I thought it would work out different. Uh, But the sooner you can get your head around, okay, it truly isn't a family member. It's not a baby. Yes, there are people that I care about in that business. But if you did everything right with those people leading up to there, if they're making a fair wage and you're helping them learn and grow in the process, they can leave. And more than likely, they're going to leave for more money than they had with you. And they're going to take all that learning that you helped them get. And they're going to be rock stars over there. Uh, in fact, we've got developers now that uh, had another one come through. I got two developers and we have a small team, right? Five or six people I got, and, and most of them are still with the business, but some of the ones that have left have been doing high level stuff at AWS, uh, Netflix now, Microsoft, and, and places where you're going, holy crap. Um, <laughs> you know, we just teed them up to go into the into the play with the big boys. One of our old marketing people has been at Converse and uh, and now Nike doing SEO work um, on on like this global scale and and that stuff to me is cool. Um, knowing that you didn't like, we've seen companies that had they were trying to keep them around because they had these really crazy salaries for the market. They had really crazy benefits. Well, if that's what's keeping you around, you're doing a disservice to those people, because when it comes time and it will come time that they need to go find another job, well, they've created a lifestyle that's up here when markets here, you know, and, and it just isn't going to work. Yeah. No kidding. Now, um,
1: you know, you already, you already mentioned that you did leave the company. Uh, how long did you stay with the company after it was acquired? Uh, I made it 19 months and that was both Uh, you and your partner.
2: Uh, yeah, I think he may have been, no, I think he actually ended up leaving the same time. Um, and so what happened there is the, the PE firm in, ended up acquiring, uh, another company that was considerably larger than the combined two companies that that we started with, uh, kind of felt the safe play was to go with that CEO and, uh, you know, we just kind of figured out that, uh, through a few meetings that, that probably wasn't going to be an ideal fit. And, and really what was best for the organization was for the two of us to, to move on.
1: Yeah, and that, and that happens so frequently, right? And it's sometimes, uh, you know, your decision, sometimes the other person's decision. But uh, one of the things that I just wanted to mention here to our listeners is that the average tenure uh, for a CEO that or a founder or CEO that sells his business to private equity Uh, is 17 months if they stay on after the sale. Many of them are selling and moving on, right? But if they stay on after the sale, the average is 17 months because... Uh, And I don't know whether you experienced this or not, but I learned this about myself a long time ago. I'm a great CEO, but I do not like to be told what to do. Right. And so (laughs) I am a terrible employee. Uh, And so so uh, whenever I've sold businesses, I made a plan for that transition right from the beginning because I knew, hey, I don't I, I don't own the pot of gold anymore. (laughs) so uh so it's you know it's it belongs to somebody else so now i know you've moved on from that and you're doing some pretty exciting things right now so what are you doing now that now that you've fully exited that business or can you talk about that now
2: uh well there's there's a mix of that so one of the things i'd tell anybody uh once you do exit try and take a little downtime um i know uh i'm just kind of called it a sabbatical for a while. Now I didn't know when it was going to end. Um, <laughs> it was just what do you know that I'm I'm on sabbatical? I I don't know what that means, but open-ended sabbatical. <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, always had the intent that, hey, within a year, no question I want to be doing something. I'm, you know, I just turned 49. So uh, one of the things I I certainly figured out quickly, there's not a whole lot of mid-late 40s guys out on the golf course on a, you know, kind of four days a week, I can play with some mid eighties guys every day of the week, but we were just a different stage of life. Right. And so, but, and you know, if I had any uh, regrets there, it's not that I regret my children. I just regret that we needed to be around for our children and my wife and I couldn't travel as much as might've done ideally, maybe on the second one. Um, So, you know i I'd, I'd put that in place you know to begin with and then for me at that point it was all right well what what options do you have right well i can go buy a distressed company and turn it around you know I kind of in a way did that with my own and i've got some element to that um But then really kind of came around to the point when an opportunity came up and somebody basically gave me an idea for a startup and kind of a built-in partner that I'd kind of come to the point where, man, startup's probably where you fit better because you can create that culture from scratch rather than changing it. Um, And I love people, but I love to hire the right people the first time and not have to go through the transition of pulling out the wrong people and putting in the right people. That's to me, that's a lot harder work than let's go find the right people from the beginning. So, um, I'm actually in the process of, of doing that startup, uh, kind of started as first of the year. Um, and what I'll say with that is it's got a, you know, it's got a video component. It's got a social media component to it. Um, and you know just kind of wait until the end of the year and we'll uh we'll we'll probably have a point where we launch and it'll be amazing and and there's no way we're going to fail right um
1: (laughs) absolutely not so well good uh perhaps it's something that uh that once you do launch that you can come back on the show and and talk with our listeners about it maybe it'll be something they're they're interested in well uh, this has been a great conversation. Before we go, one last business question, and that is, of course, this podcast is all about maximizing business value. So, throughout your uh, throughout the lessons that you've learned, what is the one most important thing that you recommend business owners do to build long-term sustainable value in their business? One thing and one thing only. One thing only. <laughs> Uh, now, I've had you know, who give me three things in their one sentence.
2: Yeah. So what I would say is if there's one overarching thing in there, you better continually learn. Right. So seek wisdom constantly in that because it's not just one thing. Right. It's you You better know, understand your business model. You better understand customer acquisition cost, customer payback. You you better have a certain amount of understanding of the finances. You better understand marketing. You better understand all those things. You better understand people and, and how to put an organization together and create a phenomenal leadership team and go through that whole thing. Right? So it's not, I mean, think of a basketball team. In fact, another favorite book is The Culture Code. Um, and uh, he talks about the San Antonio Spurs and, and uh, Popovich and how he builds that organization. And so certainly if you go to Popovich and go, man, what's the one thing you need to be a great basketball team? Well, gosh, you can't say you got to have great shooters. We well, better have some good defense too. Right. And it's a whole picture, but that creating a culture For Popovich would probably be the biggest thing. Right. Um, And oh, by the way, I need a great player. I need a, you know, but I would say continuous learning. Right. So I can, you can go get whatever degree, whatever MBA you want. But if you sit and you stop there, you're screwed. You're not going to get anywhere.
1: Well, that's it. And I'm a, you know, I'm a lifelong learner and, and I read our, our listeners already know I read probably 40 or 50 books a year. Uh, and because to me, Fifteen dollars on a on a business book is like buying an MBA, right? It's the cheapest MBA that you can get, and sure. and uh, and I just think that that's uh, great, uh, great advice. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Now I'm not going to let you off the hook. I always ask this question, uh, and so uh, and most of our listeners stay tuned just to hear the answer to this question. So the bonus is: what personality trait has gotten you into the most trouble through the years?
2: <laughs> uh Gosh, it's two sided. So you know, we're uh, we're huge fans. I'm huge fans of Culture Index. Uh, so and personal profiling and all that. And so my two widest trades. Uh, one is autonomy, is is farther to the right. Now it's not crazy, but it's further to the right. It's my highest, you know, dominant trait, which is gas pedal. And then my lowest trait is conformity uh, or detail oriented and all those sorts of things. So, uh, not terribly risk averse, right? So I'm going to go run and do it. And I'm, I have to hire the person that, uh, is going to make it stable. Um, and so, you know, it's those two together really, right. That are most likely to get me in trouble. But if you ask me, uh, who would I better hire, I've got to hire an accountant, a a person that takes care of that low detail side of me, so. Well, it's
1: funny, you and I, we probably have the same. If anybody's watching this on YouTube, you'll see <laughs> yep. my culture index. Uh, you know, I am five deviations to the right uh, for gas pedal and a zero, basically, uh, for uh, detail orientation. I'm like you. I need somebody to go execute my brilliant ideas.
2: <laughs> your Your difference is that your, your B, which is that social ability, mine's to the left. Oh, it's my a, patience okay. is to the right. Right. Oh, so man. if I combine all those together, one of the things that, that yeah, I have,
1: I, I have the patience of, of a nap. And, yeah. but I could, you know, I, this is the the way I describe my uh, B trade is that I can tell you uh, to go to hell in such a way that you'll look forward to the trip.
2: <laughs> See, the problem is I'll probably just tell you to go to hell right, <laughs> and move on. Um, and I'm okay that you you said that's fine, I'll go um, right. <laughs> which is not a good trait. Uh, but you know one of the things that I fully understand with that now, so on that culture index, I need a number two that's an architect or a tech specialist with me um, because they really compliment me and my my former partner was exactly that, right? So where where he would lean towards caution at times, I go, no, 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 here's why this would work. Uh, and we could have those conversations and get there, but he'd spend the time actually talking to the people and getting into the details where I just went, yeah, I'll be over here thinking of something new. That's right. um,
1: yeah, by the time you guys solve this one, I'll yeah. already have two more things yeah. for you to work on, right? Yep, yep. yep I'm no. Uh, so, so that is, that is great. I think that that's uh awesomeness and and you do need to find someone to compliment you. In fact, we're going to have a, a series coming up here in a couple of weeks uh, that is on those testing tools. And we're going to talk about culture index. We're going to talk about predictive index and, and, uh, and disc and, and everything else that's available. On.
2: And the whole yeah. deal, right? So yeah, we're going, we're going, um, we're going to look at all of them. Right. And what you might throw into there, um some of the big VCs will not fund a startup that doesn't have co-founders, um, and I think that's that's really telling, right? Because those yep. guys, in fact, I'm I'm listening to a book right now on the Instagram story. Uh, I think it's called No Filter. Um, that's uh, when they got their investment, um, their first investment. They they basically said, hey, here's my criteria. I don't remember which investor it was, but he said, hey, I just don't invest in single uh, person startups. I will not do it. I, I need a co-founder because you need somebody side by side to tell you when you're being stupid, basically. But, um, no, I think that that's brilliant advice.
1: In fact, one of the things that, uh, that always concerned me, and before I even understood uh, Culture Index, was that, I needed balance, right? And so sure. I've always surrounded my people with uh, myself, with people who um, who have differing opinions than mine and different strengths and skills. And it wasn't—I didn't understand the science behind it, but now it makes perfectly good sense. Well, uh, it's unfortunately it's time we have to wrap up. How can our viewers and listeners get in touch with you if they want to talk further, or if they want to invest in your new business?
2: There you go. Uh, so. I'll give you the uh I'll give you the name of the business without telling you anything about it. And you won't find a website. So Steve at totally So t o l d a o ycom uh, and that would probably be the best way to find me right now. Great. Otherwise, well, LinkedIn's great. So Yeah,
1: I was gonna say you can find them on LinkedIn. So Stephen, thank you for sharing your story with us and thank you for being our guest today.
2: Glad to do it. Thanks, Tom.
1: You can find Stephen Van Oyen on LinkedIn, or of course, you can always reach out to me and I'll be happy to make a warm introduction to someone that I recently reconnected with. And, and I guarantee you, we're going to be lifelong friends. This is the Maximize Business Value Podcast, where we give practical advice to business owners on how to build long-term sustainable value in your business. Be sure to tune in each week and follow us wherever you found this podcast so you'll know every time that there is a new episode. And by the way, if you or someone you know has successfully exited a business and therefore a member of the 17% Club and would like to be interviewed on this podcast, reach out and schedule a time for a conversation. So until next time, I'm Tom Bronson, reminding you that it is never too early to start planning your own ideal exit while you maximize business value.
0: Thank you for tuning into the Maximize Business Value podcast with Tom Bronson this podcast is brought to you by mastery partners where our mission is to equip business owners to maximize business value so they can transition on their terms learn more on how to build long-term sustainable business value and get free value building tools by visiting our website www.masterypartners.com that's master with a y masterypartners.com check it out
1: That was perfect. I wouldn't make any changes on that.